So welcome to, what is this? Is this session six? Something like that of the TLS uh, series. Uh, we're going to be looking at the atonement today. Uh, all will become clear. Uh, I'd like to welcome anybody who's joining via the podcast. You're more than welcome. You won't be able to partake of the lime and lemon scones that we have here today, but uh, <laughs> don't let that stop you from enjoying the theology, hopefully. So, um, I've called this session Atonement, What Actually Happened at the Cross? And uh, I've started here with a little quote from Alistair McGrath, and he, it simply says, The cross stands at the heart of the Christian faith. But what does it mean? How can we make sense of it? And that really is a question that has been asked for millennia. Um, and to be fair, we're never really going to plumb the details. You know, there's so much in there that our best efforts to capture what was accomplished and, and how it was done um, are really going to come up short. And that, you know, but um, there is some value though in thinking about it, and there are helpful ways and less helpful ways of doing so. So, uh, what I'm going to do in, in part one is I'm going to cover some of the the historic ways of, of thinking about it, the different theories that people have come up with, uh, exactly what was going on on that, uh, that Friday uh, in AD 29 or whenever it was. Um, but then in part two, I'm going to outline some more perhaps up-to-date thinking and, and hopefully a really biblical vision of what the atonement is. Okay, so let's have a look at the, uh, the word itself. The word atonement is an old English word, and it's sort of made up, really, because it's literally at-one-ment. So they're bringing two parties together at one. Uh, in other words, it's reconciliation. But at the time when the first English translations of the Bibles were being made, um, they didn't have the, the word reconciliation because it hadn't come through from the French yet. So they had to come up with another word, and they came up with this one. Um, so the Bible gives us several pictures of what happens to us as a result of the cross. So, for example, just running through very quickly, we're like pardoned criminals. That's Romans 5:16. We're like freed slaves. Romans 6:17 to 18. We're like adopted children. Ephesians 1:4 to 6. And we're like completely new creations. 2 Corinthians 5:17. So. These are different images that people use, images from different um, walks of life, different um, areas, to try and get across what it is. And, but really, I think fundamentally it means we're reconciled to relationship, restored to God. Um, and you know, with all this, the, the, the work on the Trinity that's been going on, we looked at that recently, relationship is the, is the key. So reconciliation and rest restoration of relationship is really what it's about. But what actually happened during those several hours on the cross that accomplished all that? Now I've put a little caveat in here saying we need to be a little bit wary of having a scientific Western mindset, you know, where we've we kind of want to delve down and tease it all apart and get into the mechanics and think well, exactly what's going on and as an engineer uh, that's something that I've had to avoid you know because I want to know how things work you know but having said that um, you know obviously we wouldn't grasp it anyway even if we really knew the the, the science of it so trying to avoid um, the insistence of knowing the exact mechanics is a good idea but keeping that in mind we can still look at some of the theories because it does help 
build our picture of God really. So let's look at some of the historical theories. So first of all, we've got here what's, what's often known as the ransom to the devil theory. So this, is, uh, this was a popular one in the early centuries of the church. Um, Jesus said, I'll give my life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20. And uh, so the, the church took this up and thought, well, what does, who was the ransom paid to then? And the conclusion was that it was the devil that received a ransom from Christ to kind of buy us back. Um, but of course that didn't really satisfy everybody. Um, and in a sense that places too much power and influence in the, uh, in the hands of the, of the devil. So it's, it's a bit sort of dualistic, you know, it's almost like God and the devil are a bit too equal in that view. Um, but then along comes a chap called Anselm um, in the 11th and 12th centuries who was a very influential theologian. He became Archbishop of Canterbury eventually, um, although there wasn't the Anglican Church at that point. So, um, so he came up with some theories now you've got to bear in mind that his thinking was coloured by his medieval thinking, you know, the, the feudal system and background and everything. But his thinking with some modifications is still kind of at the background of all the of many uh, evangelical uh, theologians thinking. So what he thought, um, oh he by the way he he uh, was a a student of Augustine. Augustine was obviously centuries before, three or four hundred AD. Um, but, but Anselm subscribed very much to Augustine's thinking, which is not um, that I reason my way to faith, but I believe and then I seek to understand. So Anselm started from faith, seeking understanding. So that's the way he came from. But he proposed that sin offends God's honour. Uh, which then requires some satisfaction to restore. And he, uh, he said, well, only humanity, only man owes the debt, but only God is great enough to pay it. And so he wrote a book called Cur uh, Deus Homo, which is why the God-man. And his answer was that the incarnation, Jesus coming as both God and man, resolves that problem because of his voluntary death in our place. So only God can pay the debt, but only man owes the debt. The whole thing is resolved by Jesus being both God and man. And that over time, that view evolved into something that's commonly called penal substitution. Penal being penalty, paying a punishment, where God punishes Jesus instead of us to satisfy justice. And justice is normally replaced has replaced honour really in the thinking. Now one weakness about that, I mean firstly that if you're not careful that pitches God against God in a sense, but one other weakness is that it sort of makes God subject to some arbitrary law of justice outside of himself if you're not careful. Um, and it's almost like God can't escape his justice and therefore he's in a big dilemma and, and has to solve it. Now there are answers to those things, you know, people are very careful to try and avoid those weaknesses, but, you know, they are there, they are, they are a weakness of that view. Um, then a, along comes a chap called Peter Abelard, who was quite a colourful character. Um, he was um, around about the same time, a bit younger than Anselm, and he came up with something called, it became known as the moral influence theory. Um, 
he also was a bit of a lad. Um, he was a very intelligent man and he was hired by a nobleman to be the tutor for this nobleman's rather attractive and well-educated niece. And uh, their relationship apparently evolved to the point where it was a, a meeting of more than just minds and uh, she ended up having a baby boy um, which enraged the, uh, the, the nobleman. Um, he, Abelard decided to marry her, you know, do the decent thing as it were, but uh, the nobleman um, arranged for him to be attacked one night in such a way that he was mutilated to the extent that he wouldn't be able to repeat his folly, um, <laughs> which meant that he became a monk <laughs> instead. <laughs> And the and the girl went into a convent, you know. But they, they kind of they kept communicating with each other over time, you know. And it, um, it's a slightly sad story. But anyway, in between all that, he came up with another theory of the atonement, and and he didn't he rejected Augustine's view of I believe and then I seek to understand. He basically started with doubt, which is a bit more of a modern way of looking at things. You know, you start with well, I'm going to reason my way to faith. Um, but his view of the cross was that it was such an example of God's love that it awakens a response of love in us which changes us so that we can be saved. Now his thinking is still popular with some people like the Orthodox and some Catholics. Um, the weakness of the moral influence theory, apart from the fact that it almost sounds like salvation by works, although it isn't necessarily that, um, the, the main weakness is that if Jesus' death didn't actually achieve anything really concrete, then it can't really act as an example. Because if I say I'm, there's a building on fire and I run into a burning building and I get killed, and it's an empty building and I didn't really need to do it, that's just stupid. <laughs> uh, but if I see a burning building and there's somebody in there and I run in and I pull them out and I save them and in the process I'm killed, then I'm a hero. So unless Jesus actually achieved something by dying, then he can't, his death can't be an example of love because mm -hmm. it's just bravado, it's just meaningless, it's foolishness, you know. Um, now, in, in reality, it's quite likely that Abelard, although he was a bit of a controversial character, he did, probably didn't wholly reject the notion of satisfaction in some way. And Anselm himself wasn't as extreme as some of his followers, but these two guys have become symbolic of two extremes. Um, sometimes called the objective view, which is where something's got to change outside of us for us to be saved. In other words, something has got to change in God for us to be saved, which is the Anselm side, and the subjective view, which is that something's got to change in us for us to be saved, and that's the Abelard view. And that was kind of how it remained for a long time. And then in the early 20th century, a Swedish theologian called Gustav Orlen wrote a really famous uh, piece of work um, which eventually became known as Christus Victor which is Christ the Victor. Ah there it is, well done Steve, he's brought, he's brought along his, his own work, fantastic. Um, now he claimed that the early church's view of the atonement as in this ransom to the devil had actually been misunderstood and so he said look they didn't really believe, it wasn't, they weren't as daft as has been made out 
it wasn't so much a ransom to the devil, but it was a defeat of the devil and Satan and, and, and evil and sin and death um, by Christ and by Christ's work on the cross. So he called it the classic view because he believed it was the historic view that the church had and he believed it was also reflected in Luther and, and some of the re reformers. Now what that view does, it, it avoids um, any perceived discontinuity in God. It avoids this kind of God versus God thing. And it also takes seriously the reality of, of spiritual warfare and, and the existence of evil and the need to defeat um, the enemy. Uh, that one of the weaknesses is that potentially human beings are almost reduced to a prize over which God and Satan are fighting. Mm -hmm. So we become a little bit passive almost and um, you know God and the devil are sort of fighting for us and then God wins. Um, but there's, there's a lot to be said for that view. There's a, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Now Orlan rejected the other views as rivals and he just sort of dismissed them but a lot of people have come to see some value in all of this because they all have their strengths as well as weaknesses so sometimes people say look these are facets of a greater whole so through Christ God simultaneously deals with sin and puts us right with him which is the objective view he awakens our love for God in the example of the cross which is the subjective view and he defeats all our enemies which is the, uh, the classic view Okay, so that, um, that sort of a potted history, if you like, of, of where things have been. But in recent years, um, the sort of the controversy, if you like, has built up. Um, and the idea of God punishing an innocent person, i.e. Jesus, to pay a debt or ransom or a bill, or whatever, to himself has come under a lot of question and a lot of thinking about this. And... Um, it's very easy to set up a caricature and then knock down the caricature and good theologians have, have always tried to be careful not to portray God fighting against God but if we actually boil it down to what the, the penal substitution view is putting it crudely the idea of a wrathful father torturing and killing his innocent son has become rather unacceptable in our culture um, you know you had a few years ago you had Steve Chalk um, uh, kind of stirring up a bit of controversy by by saying that look you know the way we talk about the atonement it's, it, it comes across as like cosmic child abuse mm -hmm. and a lot of evangelicals took took a lot of offense at that and I was kind of oh at the time um, but I, and I, 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 to be honest, I haven't read exactly what he said and, and all the ins and outs, but I can understand where he might have been coming from because in our culture, people are beginning to say, well, where's the justice? Where's the justice in that? Now, careful theologians are very careful to portray it in a very different way and they try and guard against the extremes of that view. Um, but this idea of, of God punishing Jesus instead of us, it, it also... It, it flows against this idea of the Trinity about the unbreakable relationship and the, and the, um, at the heart of God. Um, but at the same time, if you start to question it, people, and I, and I'm, you know, I mean myself as well as anyone um, a few years ago, you, know, you, you tend to think, well, hang on, if you throw that away, 
you know, where do I, where am I left? What am I left with? You know, because we're, we're so, we see it in such a, an all-encompassing way that if somebody questions that aspect of the atonement, we're suddenly thinking, well, did Jesus die for my sins? You know, did Jesus pay any kind of price for me? And so we're suddenly, um, people are touching what's precious and what is foundational to us. So what, what I'm going to do, we're going to have a, a break in a moment um, and uh, break into the scones again. Um, but in part two, what I want to do is, is find a way to keep the best of the old model, if you like, but avoid the extremes. Um, and so that we can keep hold of what's precious and what's important and what's fundamental, but, but not be in danger of going down this, this path. Okay, um, and I th I think it's a good a good thing, and it's uh, it's not my own it's not my own thinking. It's based on very up to date scholarship. A good guy. So discussion time. So let's consider the following questions. Firstly, which theory of the atonement were you originally taught? Uh, I pretty much all it's all going to be one of them. I would imagine, although some people may have had one of the others. Um, what about it, if anything, is important to you personally? You know, what is it that you wouldn't want to lose about that? But what flaws can you see in it if it's taken to extremes? Okay. Anyway, so, a fantastic discussion, and it's good sometimes not to be able to, <laughs> to shut people up to carry on, because it means it's awoken, uh, you know, some some good thoughts there so hopefully a lot of the questions that have come up in that in that short break will be um, will be addressed and I'm not claiming to be you know you didn't the no I didn't no. <laughs> um, hopefully that even if they were not answered to everybody's complete you know understanding and satisfaction hopefully we will oh yeah can you give out part two bit of Peggy pardon so part two is another two sheets so I've called this um, a biblical vision of the atonement. Um, now, as I've already said, despite the best efforts of, of very careful theologians, the problem with the penal substitution theory is that it can easily tip into this vision of an angry deity bent on blood yes. needing to be pacified by human sacrifice. Now, that is, as I say, I keep repeating, that is not what theologians try and put across uh, but it's easy to tip into that um, and it's actually a it's easy for preachers to tip and it's easy yes exactly it's easy for preachers who want to elicit an emotional response to tip into that um, but it's actually a pagan concept you know that lots there were pagan nations around at the time when the Bible the New Testament was written who did think that way you know that you know you had to pacify the angry deity sometimes by human sacrifice. But that's not what the first century Jews believed and it's not what Christians believed either. So how do we avoid the danger of, of people's thinking tipping into that? Uh, how do we understand it differently? And it's all down to this according to the scriptures again. Um, so a lot of this is going to be based on a, a really excellent, amazing book uh, by Tom Wright N.T. Wright, former Bishop of Durham, amazing writer, uh, called The Day the Revolution Began, Rethinking the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion. And uh, one of the little quotes I've got here from there is, 
In many expressions of pagan religion, the humans have to try to pacify the angry deity. But that's not how it happens in Israel's scriptures. The biblical promises of redemption have to do with God himself acting because of his unchanging, unshakable love for his people. And that is actually what people try and say, you know, even those who promote penal substitution, they try and say that. Um, but first of all, the, the, the first thing that will stop us from going down that pagan route is that atonement is, from first to last, it's the work of God acting in love. Yeah. And God is not conflicted within himself. The whole trinity was involved, as, as I think you were saying, live about the shack, you know, the, the, the father and son and spirit. Um, in John Stott's chunky book about the cross, um, which is pretty much sort of penal substitution stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but he writes this, George Buttrick, not sure who he is, but John obviously knew him. Um, George Buttrick wrote of a picture which hangs in an Italian church, although he didn't identify it. At first glance, it's like any other painting of the crucifixion. Oh, thanks, Samantha. As you look more closely, however, you perceive the difference because there is a vast and shadowy figure behind the figure of Jesus. The nail that pierces the hand of Jesus goes through to the hand of God. The spear thrust into the side of Jesus goes through into God's. And that's just amazing. Um, as a, an amazing theologian called Jürgen Moltmann, um, sort of was quite prolific through the, through the 20th century, really, second half of the 20th century. And he wrote a, a book called The Crucified God. And really blew into the, the the water, blew out the water. This theory that God is impassable. Theologians, you know, a systematic theology. They often talk about God being impassable, not impossible, impassable. And that's the concept that God cannot change. Therefore, what they say is, therefore, God can't suffer, because that would mean him being affected by things outside of himself, by his creation. And Maltman and others have said, no, that's rubbish. <laughs> God voluntarily opens himself up to the possibility of suffering because that's the nature of love. Love opens itself up. And it's, that's the whole thing of the Trinity and the pouring out. God voluntarily opens himself up to the possibility of being hurt. Um, and so God isn't impassable. And that means that when Jesus died on the cross, the whole Trinity, all three persons were involved and going through that with him. Um, and that will affect the way we, we understand the atonement. <clears throat> now the real essential key, as I've already said, <clears throat> to having the right view of the cross, and we saw this last time in our session on the Gospel, so if you're listening on the podcast and you haven't heard the one on the Gospel, I would go back and listen to that one, because it's, I'm using this, and I'm using that as a, um, a stepping stone for this. But Jesus died according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, it's not just it was, his death was predicted in the Scriptures, but his death and his suffering and his resurrection and everything was actually a culmination of the whole sweep of Scripture. So in other words, we've got to keep it all within the context of the story, the overall story, the narrative of the people of Israel as laid out in the Old Testament. So we're getting back to our hermeneutical principles. If you think about what we spoke about on hermeneutics, how did they understand it? Rather than seeing it from our our 21st century Western view, what were they thinking? 
when they wrote this, when they read it the first time, they were thinking about, well, according to the scriptures, okay, wow, the scriptures, that talks about all the history of Israel. So what was the story? Um, Israel had a covenant with God, God had made a covenant with them, but they'd broken it, and therefore they had missed their vocation, their purpose, that they were meant to image God, to bring his image to the earth, and also to bring salvation to the nations. They were meant to be a light for the Gentiles, but they'd, they'd not kept the covenant, so they were effectively in exile, they were in ongoing exile, and we looked at this in the last session, they needed a new exodus from slavery. Now, back in, in, in the covenant creating days, in Deuteronomy 28, for example, verse 15, God predicts that if they don't keep the covenant, that covenant curses will come upon them. Um, now, similarly, when Jesus is, is around and he's talking to people, he's talking to the religious authorities, he predicts that pagan nations will destroy them if they don't repent. So he's talking about Rome, obviously, because they were the occupier at the time. So Luke 13, verses 1 to 8, it's saying, you know, if, um, if, if you don't repent, you're, gonna, you're all going to perish, basically. And there are a few cases in the Gospels where traditionally people think that Jesus is talking about hell, when actually he's talking about falling buildings and, and you know, Romans marauding through the city and destroying them. Now, Jesus, you know, Jesus does talk about hell in some places, but not in as many as people think. Now, of course, that actually happened. His words were fulfilled in AD 70. But just as God um, in Deuteronomy predicts that they, if they don't keep the covenant, they're going to be overrun by their enemies, they're going to be attacked by the pagans, and these different curses are going to come down on them as a result of them not keeping the covenant, Jesus is also saying, look, unless you repent, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, <clears throat> the amazing thing is, and there are many scriptures where it's, it, it becomes clear that Jesus is seeing himself and stepping into the shoes of uh, Israel. So he becomes Israel's representative. And at the cross, in, in order to preempt all this, he basically calls down the curses almost on himself, or you know, he allows the curses to come on himself. So he steps in as Israel's representative and substitute and experiences the wrath of the Romans that he predicted for his nation. So even in a literal sense, you know, he, he got the wrath of the Roman occupier on him. He takes upon himself the death of a revolutionary and a rebel. See, the Romans crucified people that were rebelling against Rome, and it was a, it was a humiliating put-down and a demonstration of their power, and it was basically the death reserved for people that rebelled against the emperor, basically that sort of thing. Um, and so you get this amazing exchange between Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas was a revolutionary. He was a rebel. He did want to overthrow the Romans by force. And that's what Jesus was saying when he said, unless you change your view as to what God is going to do to get rid of this occupation, you're going to end up arousing the wrath of the Romans and, and you're going to be wiped out. Uh, Barabbas was still trying to do that. And what I love about Barabbas is that his name means son of the father. Yeah. And you've got this exchange with the son of the father. Yeah. 
and he and then you, you've got this kind of long drawn out exchange in the gospels and it's saying look jesus is innocent and yet he's taking the place of rebel israel wow. even though you know he hasn't done anything wrong um and so the way i i've come to understand what happened on the cross is that these covenant curses come down on jesus and in in so doing he absorbs them he absorbs the consequences of israel's sin and therefore also of the world's sin i'll, I'll talk a bit more about that in a, in a bit into himself and thereby exhausts it and it's like drawing the sting drawing the venom from a wound um, and making a way through and through the incarnation humanity has been joined to god so therefore we also died we were with him we were in christ when he died and therefore we have also gone through um, that experience and we can benefit from his victory so it's as though god stirred up evil evil sort of reached its full height and came to a head and poured out um, all those curses on jesus delivered its worst blow so that it could be dealt with so the results of sin have been borne by jesus and that means there's no curse left for the covenant people israel so getting back to the story of israel again so it was predicted that these curses would come on them and in jesus they did but that means they've been exhausted and there's nothing left therefore they can be released from exile and they can get on with their true mandate which is to release blessing to the world also because jesus was the substitute for israel he has done what they were called to do but couldn't which was to suffer for the nations um, that's the other way of looking at isaiah 53 that israel was meant to be a corporate son that would suffer on part on behalf of the nations but they failed to do that but as Israel's substitute Jesus did that therefore he's also given the Gentiles their own exodus from slavery to sin and releasing them to become part of this whole Israel project that is then relaunched around Jesus now why have we labored the Israel connection because well it's important not to short-circuit the whole thing and write Israel out of the picture if we do it leads to distortion so if we if we don't keep in mind that Israel was this nation that had a covenant that had a vocation Jesus kind of fulfilled it on their behalf to kind of relaunch the whole thing if we if we don't keep that in mind then we there's a lack of focus then on vocation on our purpose on our our, mm. our being the images of God in creation and it becomes about how God deals with my sin rather than right. who's God called me to be. Um, it also means that we, l we lose focus on covenant and relationship and it becomes more transactional yeah. um, and individualistic. Yeah. But to understand this, I need to say a bit more about wrath and punishment. Um, and I have, come up, I have <laughs> talked about this before um, when we talked about the... Um, on our Bible session I think so what is God's wrath then because it does crop up in the Bible 
Now, first of all, God is obviously angered by things that hurt and damage people. He hates anything that, that hurts people, that damages people, that dehumanizes people and damages his world. But God's anger is very much different to our anger. It's restorative and it works alongside his love and the whole purpose of God's anger is to do away with evil, put a stop to it to allow good to flourish so that people can be restored and he doesn't want people caught in the crossfire uh, as he does that. You know it's, it's quite clear in the Bible he wants no one to perish, he wants everyone to come to eternal life which rather goes against the, the strict Calvinist view of limited atonement which we mentioned earlier. Um, so I, I suggested in, in the session on the Bible that r the idea of wrath or punishment from God are actually a shorthand way, um, a metaphor that the Bible uses for the results of someone's sin coming upon people. So it's about direct results rather than any kind of arbitrary penalty. So if I, if I go out in my car <coughs> and I <coughs> drive too fast, two things can happen. One is I could crash, or I could hurt somebody, I could crash into somebody and injure someone or whatever. That's a direct result of what I did. The other thing that could happen is I could get, um, I could get flashed by a speed camera and I could get a fine and I could get three points on my license. That is nothing really, it's not a direct result of what I did, but it's a penalty that somebody imposed to try and dis dis dissuade me from doing it again. And that's the difference. So. We've often assumed that God's wrath is to do with an arbitrary penalty that God decides, I'm going to punish you. It's not a direct result, but it's, I'm going to apply this penalty to you because you've done something wrong. Um, now, what I would say is, the way I'm understanding wrath, the way I'm understanding that, you know, the Bible is a progressive revelation, as you were saying earlier, Maria, about the, the light, you know, the different colours of light shining on the Bible and revealing more as, as time goes by. It was spoken of in the, you know, particularly early on in the Bible as, as God's wrath, and they, they did see God that way. But I would see it now as when God allows the consequences of someone's actions to catch up with them however reluctantly that might be. Now, there are results from sin. In our session on the Gospel, um, we talked about sin not just being a moral failure, not just breaking a rule or whatever, but it's the result of idolatry. In Romans chapter 1 it says they, they abandoned the worship of the true God and gave themselves over to the worship of things that aren't God, and therefore God gave them over too. And the sin followed the idolatry. So what happens is when humans worship what isn't God, the things that they worship, the idols, we give them our authority. And the spiritual powers behind those idols then take control. They're only too happy to do that and they wreak havoc in people's lives. So there's a spiritual aspect to it where we reap what we sow because we've worshipped what isn't God and what isn't God has taken control and causing havoc. Also, sin damages people themselves because it twists a person from being the true image of God into something less. Um, and of course there are often actual, you know, just practical results of sin that, that, that catch up with people as well. But in all these ways there are real consequences of sin. 
So whenever God respects our free will, and despite warning, you see it in the in the Old Testament about in the people of Israel. He says, you know, you've got to turn. You've got to, you know, you're doing this, and it's it's just going to result in terrible stuff. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God warns them again and again and again, tries to woo them back, and eventually, he allows the consequences to catch up with them, and that's seen as wrath. But it's not an arbitrary penalty that God tries to impose, it's the result, it's the direct results of their sin that finally catches up with them. So I think we, we can speak of the cross in a sense as punishment. Um, Isaiah 53 does talk about that, it says, you know, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. But we have to be careful not to see God as inflicting this arbitrary punishment on Jesus to satisfy justice. But rather, it's God the Trinity stepping in to take upon himself the full consequences of our sin, absorbing it and overcoming it. So how do we think about punishment then? Well, if you think about the, the, the ransom theory, it's all very well to say Jesus' life was a ransom. Jesus himself said that. But when we start to push that too far, and start to think too much about it and think, well, who was the ransom paid to? You end up with all sorts of silliness. It's the same with punishment. It was a punishment in a sense. You know, you, it, it was curses coming down on Jesus. But we can push that too far and start to think, well, who's punishing whom and, and who does that? Now, if you think about, um, there's a uh, scripture in Romans 8, verse 3. What does Paul think about this? Well, Paul states that God... Um, condemned sin in the flesh. So in other words, what Paul says is God punished sin in Jesus, but he never says God punished Jesus. So the cross demonstrates God's justice, his hatred and condemnation of sin. But also it demonstrates his own love in absorbing and exhausting the consequences, the results of sin in himself. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can, you know, we could have a bit of a few questions and answers afterwards if need be. But basically, the full consequences of sin have been faced and they've been overcome by Christ and those in Christ ourselves as well. So the principalities and powers have, have done their worst. They've thrown everything at us, at Jesus. And there's nothing left. They can't throw anything anymore because they've thrown everything and that was it. Jesus has taken it. So forgiveness is now available. The power of the idols is broken because sin gave them a reason to accuse, gave them an opportunity to accuse and hold power over us. But if all that's gone, then the idols are overcome and we're free to worship the true God and be part of that renewed Israel, the new vocation, and new, well, it's the same vocation as always been, but take up the true vocation as his image and being priests to creation. Now, if, if we see the atonement that way, and we see it in the context of what God was doing in Israel and what he did himself stepping in, then we haven't lost anything vital. You know, we haven't lost this idea of God the Son coming into the world to do what we could never do 
you know we couldn't do it ourselves so he came and did it on our behalf and he shoulders a burden and a cost that we could never bear or pay in order to unite us with him and that really keeps the essence of Anselm's thought it keeps the best aspect of what Anselm was saying that only the God man could do this but it also reveals the God's unshakable love for us uh, and awakens that response like Abelard um, talked about and by confronting sin and exhausting the results of sin it disarms and defeats all the powers all the evil is defeated and therefore it's Christus Victor yeah. so there's obviously a lot there to, to think on and I mean I, this is I've been mulling this over for a very long time so I'm assuming that you're going to take time to, to think about all this but just one or two final thoughts before we we break we finish um, this cry of Jesus from the cross it is finished people have sometimes taken that and said well that's what they write at the bottom of a bill or a set of accounts when the accounts are closed and it's the bills been paid and well okay you know maybe that is true that, that that was what they wrote but often I think they're using that to back up their particular view of the atonement what uh, N.T. Wright says is that it's better to see that cry of it is finished um, as the completion of the work for the new creation so Genesis 2 verse 2 by the seventh day God had finished the work he'd be doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work so there's a there's a finishing of the of the original creation and then John 17 verse 4 Jesus says I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do so when Jesus says it's finished he's meaning the new creation is here the work's been done and if we see it that way then it becomes less like a transaction and more like the breaking in of a new kingdom yeah. and we're going to cover some more of that next time actually on the uh, on what the you know how exactly the cross the results of the cross are applied to us so when we see the, the cross in the light of Israel's story it's still penal in a sense you can't get much more penal than the covenant curses it's sort of a form of punishment but it and it's also substitutionary in that Jesus did what we couldn't do he became the representative and the substitute for Israel and for the world but by setting it in the context of that you know according to the scriptures the biblical narrative where Israel has this vocation and fails and gets restored and God himself comes to rescue them we avoid the unhelpful stuff you know we avoid this idea of God the Father versus God the Son we avoid it looking like just an individualistic transaction um, but at the same time we can still say Jesus died for our sins mm. you know Jesus is our substitute he died in my place mm. you know we don't have to stop saying that because it's true um, he bore our sin <coughs> not some kind of arbitrary penalty meted out by an angry God but the results the consequences you know he was attacked by every spiritual force around at the time that had been let loose in the world by our idolatry um, he was attacked by the pagan nations that had been stirred up by 
you know, the, the history, the way Israel had been in, in not keeping the covenant. Um, and I believe he faced all, all kinds of, you know, unimaginable horrors, which were the results of all our sin. So he did bear our sin. Um, but it's not as commonly thought where, you know, this angry, wrathful God pours out his anger on Jesus. That is not how we are to see it, I believe, now. So I'm just going to close with uh, another quote from good old Tom. Um, he says, We do not, of course, have to give up the idea of Jesus dying for our sins. Indeed, that remains at the very centre. But that idea is refocused, recontextualized, placed within a narrative not of divine petulance, but of unbreakable divine covenant love embodied in the actual person, life, actions and teaching of Jesus himself. And I think that's a good way to, to stop. Next time we're going to look at you know, some of the achievements of the cross, justification and righteousness and and some of the concepts we've talked about now will sort of flow into that um amen lots to think about